This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. This is Talking Flutes. I'm Claire Southworth, and I'm still talking on Zoom. Hello, John Paul. Hello, Claire. Yes, we're still talking. I just switched off the microphone for two minutes, didn't I? <laughs> From the last uh, Talking Flutes podcast we did. Yes, because we're not together, are we? We're, we're in we're separate not parts of the country. Yeah, the wonders of Zoom come to Talking Flutes again, so it's brilliant. So you've compiled the most wonderful list, and our listeners have helped in this, of, of questions. And we're just going to try and plough through them. And if any of our listeners have some of their own questions, then do send them in. You know, we've got our Facebook page, Talking Flutes, or you can contact us on Twitter or Instagram, at Flute or at Claire Flute, or email, which is flutepodcasts at gmail.com. I think I've got all that right. But we love getting questions. It makes us stop and think. Should we jump in to the first question, Claire? Go for it. Is it appropriate for flute players to use electronic amplification and effects pedals during live performances, or does this detract from the traditional sound of the instrument? Prof, over to you. Well, you've got two different areas here. A lot of your questions have got two parts, haven't they? Yeah. So the two different areas here are really whether you're playing traditional or conventional music or contemporary I'm thinking, so if we start with tra- traditional, conventional, if you're playing that sort of music, then you shouldn't need extra amplification because part of our training is about projecting our sound, projecting the music to an audience and to all parts of the concert hall. And I think if you were suddenly to use that extra amplification, like with a microphone, it completely distorts really how you're playing the music. This, it reminds, I just remembered at a, one of the NFA flute conventions, and now often those convention hotels, the halls are unlike normal concert halls because they're not a concert hall, it's a convention hall. And the acoustic is really dead. And you feel that when you play, that the, that the sound has just stopped right in front of you. And it's very easy to start to force it because you think it's just stopped. I remember there was one particular flute convention. I can't remember where it was now. I think it might've been the, one of the Chicago ones. And I'd got to the rehearsal and this was with orchestra and there was a microphone set up and it felt really uncomfortable. So I remember we re- rehearsed with this microphone on and it felt really so unnatural. So I didn't use it. So I told them to to take it away because, of course, the orchestra wasn't using microphones. It was just me. So it made it feel very unnatural. And I didn't know how to blend or stand out in the normal way because of the microphone was amplifying everything I did. So I love the feeling of making my sound travel through a concert hall. um, And I think a microphone can inhibit that natural playing. I'm going to take you back to a St. John Smith Square recital that you did, which when you introduced a microphone and a backing track, 
it was quite new in that sort of world to have a, a proper recital in a big concert hall, playing sort of world premieres and playing wonderful, beautiful classical music to throw in this piece, TRK's from, by Ian Clark, right in the middle. But for me, it, it was beautiful because it gave sort of permission to close my eyes and just sort of get inside something different. So you bring that in, that was a long time ago now, so yep. I think enhanced the musical experience. You only used it on that one piece. So it wasn't taking my focus away. So you didn't go from electronic amplification and pedals and other areas to take my brain to different areas of flute playing. So you didn't go contemporary and then you didn't go to classical and you didn't then go on to stuff with backing tracks. It was, it was a logical place to put something and then you went back to classical and for me that was it was a great holistic experience well that's that program was interesting because that was an all british program and we had some first performances there and i think the trks in class trks was a first uk performance premiere and we also had premieres of uh, mike mower and andy scott so I had some absolutely spot on of the moment music from three living composers. And I also had some Baroque and 18th century, 19th century within that program. And it was interesting with the TRKs because the last podcast we were talking about memory, the TRKs we did with the lights down and I played for memory. And there was something about that surround sound of the backing track where what happened was that by playing into a microphone my sound came out of the same speakers as the backing track so it it brought it all together you know it it wasn't me playing on top of something it was me playing in that sound and I loved that piece and I remember going on tour around the states the, the next year and I played it in every concert and that became one of the most popular pieces because it was so are you right because it was so different so one minute you're playing something maybe baroque or classical and then suddenly you're transported to a completely different sound experience and, and it's that contrast that makes it exciting so I, I love that piece yeah we all know Ian, Ian writes some really technical and some quite contemporary but it also, also he always writes some things with themes. Well, everything he has has a theme, and the title is very important to the theme. With TRKs, it wasn't. It was contemporary, but it isn't. When you listen to it now, it is just beauty and these chords that he put in the backing. It's not contemporary backing. It's just this beautiful, gorgeous, almost Middle Eastern type vibe with a little bit of jazz. Yep. It's a little crossover of everything, um, and it's it's evocative and mesmerizing and it takes you to a different place everyone should go and have a listen but it's lovely when you hear it live with the lights down it's very evocative it's a it's a fantastic piece a couple of years ago i went to a i was up in manchester and i went to see i was asked to go and see if i would go and watch a recital in a, a local church by a flute player and a pianist and she she went through the whole gamut so she started off with baroque and ended up with contemporary but for me, I was losing the enjoyment of the, the piece before 
because the next piece was getting you could tell there was this this focus this the sat, her satellite navigation was going from contemporary to modern day so mm. i knew that we were going to end up in plink plonk land at the end <laughs> and from it was just too it was too, it, even though there was a rationale behind it for me listening to the the flute i lost the sound of the flute because it became too soundscapey at the end i had to understand the story before i tried to understand what she was playing so mm. i was not sat there actually enjoying the flute i was it was very good and very creative and i got it but for me personally it's probably my age there was just too much there so only the first sort of third of the concert was of really showing and demonstrating what the flute can do. After that, it was more about the technical side of what she could do. And mm. whilst it was genius, I just didn't get it. And we have to understand that's fine because not, all, not every audience member will get everything you do. But you do have to be very careful in that you need to bring your audience along with you, don't you? Yes, you do. And I, I, you, you touched on something there about the understanding. I mean, I've been to I've been to recitals, been to final student recitals where I have not heard a proper flute sound. I've just heard, as you called it, plinkety plonk. So that where the music is so contemporary that you don't know if they can actually play the flute properly. And from an audience point of view, the understanding the piece is is very, very important. So I remember when I first learnt Barry Sequenza and the Boulez Sonatine, I actually didn't understand them. I didn't know what I was doing. I just learnt it. I learned what was the notes on the page. And it was a few years later that I actually studied the, the Sequenza, Barry Sequenza. I mean, it's so easy with Google now. <laughs> you can go and look up various things and get information. Whereas when I was first learning it, there was nothing written down. There was, I didn't have contact with people who would know like Nicolet or Peter Lucas Graf. They, they knew what it was all about. I didn't have sort of so much contact with them. With, with Nicolet, I did do many years later, the Boulet, when I was at college, the Boulet Sonatine in a class with him. And it, he suddenly brought it to life. And I was sort of enjoying the piece, but it took me three months to learn it. But then I had this class with him, which lasted, oh, there was a couple of hours on Boulez. And he just brought it to life. It was absolutely stunning. And I suddenly thought, this piece is genius. And that if I was going to go on and play that in a recital, I would start by explaining to the audience what it was all about and what they should listen to. And the same with the Barrier Sequenza. I learned about... With Berio, there was like I can't remember clearly, but there were, there were four elements that he used within that piece. And when you understand those four elements, it, the piece suddenly becomes alive, and you understand what he's what he's doing. So we're talking about the the mixture of music in in concerts, and so not just using very contemporary music. But I think if you're going to throw in something different, maybe using electronic amplification or pedals, then your audience needs a roadmap. Yeah. So they know what's going on. And if they don't have that roadmap, they will more often than not rejected, not necessarily a flute audience, but a general audience who go to be entertained. If you play something to them that they don't understand, they won't like it. So you need to give them some information that they can hang on to. The same as if you're playing, um, 
an early piece, a Baroque piece, I used to always give a little story, you know, just so that they could understand the flavor of the music, whether it was bright and jolly or or dark and and you know morose, who whatever it was, that you gave them an idea of what the piece was about. Yeah, I used to do that. I used to make up a story. Me too. Yeah. I used to <laughs> just to give a little narrative. They shouldn't stop people putting in pieces with electronic amplification and effects pedals because they are gorgeous in the right context. And providing you're bringing the audience with you, just be very Mm -hmm. careful when you bring that type of music in because the subsequent piece is going to be a measure of the piece before, whether you accept the new piece. And what you did very cleverly when you did TRKs, which was absolutely stunning, you put the, if I remember rightly, you had the Andy Scott world premiere piece afterwards, which was, the genre was, it was almost a slight overlapping genre, but you brought back in the flute as a virtuosic instrument without taking the audience too far backwards into a technical piece. So that was very, mm-hmm. very cleverly done. So I don't mind if I, I think it's genius when I hear flute players play plinky plonky, as long as I know what they're playing and providing mm-hmm. they, they're going, I don't have to then go back to Foray Sicilien or the Poulonk afterwards. It's um, just a, one more point before going to the next question is that when you look at all the music that's been written the last 300 years, there's only a small amount that really stands the test of time. True. Now, if you look at the music that's been written in the last 50 years, also, there'll only be a small amount of that music that will last the, the test of time. And so it's important to, to learn it and to understand it and to introduce the audience to something that's new because there's some fabulous pieces that use amplification and other, other effects. Oh, and the wonderful Melissa Keeling with her... Robert Dick yes. head. I mean, the glissando head joint. Yes, and the head. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah. Make sure you check out Melissa Keeling on YouTube because then you will see what amplification, working with pedals and working with a head joint that the lip plate moves up and down. So you can do a wow, wow effect. And she just plays, she can play stuff that Jimi Hendrix used to play, which is absolutely stunning because when you put it through pedals and through a system, my word, it, she can go mad on that instrument. So there is a place. And an enjoyable place. But whether you can do that and Baroque in the same, well, only the audience will let you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Should we move on, Claire? And this, yes, yes. And this is on a very similar line. It is, should flute players focus more on perfecting their technique and performing classical repertoire? Or is it important to explore more contemporary styles and genres? Mm. You've also given us two issues here. Yeah. On In terms of, perfecting technique and performing. To perform well, you need to perfect your technique. I would say that the aim here, if if we're talking about professionals, the aim is to push your technique to a level where every piece is playable, sort of a balanced diet of everything. Performers, I think, need to be learning and playing the music, like we've just been saying, the music of today and living composers, just as much as learning from the masters. We are of the moment, and whatever moment you're in, then you should you should play it. I mean, when I was at college, Robert Dick was breaking new ground, and now it's different. It's different composers, and it's interesting that we've gone from certainly back in the in the eighties, 
where it was, it felt very contemporary, the music, the, the, the new music was being written. And I feel that today it's gone more to being more melody based, something that you can actually hum a bit of a tune to. So if you look at Ian Clark, Andy Scott, Dave Heath, Mike Mower, they are writing music that draws you in. It's got, and Christopher Caliendo is another one, of course, that they are writing pieces that are technically, I find technically very difficult. So you need to perfect your technique in order to play it. But they're not just using, it's not just squeak, it's not squeaky gate music. That's what I used to call it. It's it's actually got more substance to it. And it's all different genres. It's like world music all together. A little bit of classical, a bit of jazz. Uh, there's, there's so much crossover going on in the music of today. So yes, in your question, we should explore all styles, not restrict ourselves, but we can learn an awful lot, of course, from the masters, from the, you know, just playing Bach and Mozart. It, it teaches you so much, absolutely so much. I wished I'd look, I, well, I wish I'd listened to more musical genres when I was growing up. Because, Me too. yeah, I wish I'd listened more to jazz. I wish yes. I'd listened more to the pop stuff in the day, the pop stuff in the 1930s, the jive. I wished I'd listened to more to open my mind, my soul to different feels and different vibes rather than concentrating solely on the classical music that we had to play in those days. Because when I was growing up, there, like, there was contemporary, but contemporary was not, it's not like the contemporary of today. Because as you say, Robert Dick started to really push the barriers and that's been taken to different levels now. So I always think it's important to have open, well, your mind must be like a parachute, must always be open and not confined, however important it is to the classical genre. The audiences love classical. You know, they're the staples. As you say, how I was having this conversation the other day. If you look at the current pops, the current people on the pop scene, how many of them will, will, will we still be singing their songs in 50 years' time? Like the mm. Beatles. You know, my kids are 25, 26, but they can sing all the Beatle numbers, but they weren't around when the Beatles were around. Mm. But yet, for a Sicilian, Poulonk, the Chaminade, of all pieces, the Chaminade that every flute player probably gets completely fed up with because everybody plays it, but it's around today. The contemporary music is important to be able to expand your performing parameters, but we can't forget the roots and the structure in which, you know, as, as musicians and flute players, we've been born. But I do wish that I had had a greater understanding of jazz a greater understanding of bebop and a greater understanding of jive, just that, you know, those different nuances. So that mm. when you come across modern day music and there's a bit of jazz in there, you're playing it understanding the jazz idiom rather than the, da, 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 you know, the, the thing, the way that classically trained flute players or musicians play jazz, which isn't jazz. It's just, it's just interesting you just remind me of, because I'm always going on about, yes, world music and learn all, all different genres. My beginner book, which is the duets yeah. by Anne Scott, I asked him to write me 24 duets for the, for the beginner book of all different genres. I said, it needs to be world music. I don't want it just to be nursery rhymes. 
And so he wrote me 24 duets in with all different genres from world music. And I had to go and study what they were in order to write in the book what was what they were playing. Because, you know, on the simple level, he would talk about, he would write something that was in the style of gospel music. So I needed to go and look up gospel music and, and where it originated from and, and why is it called gospel music and why do we hear it and say that's gospel music or the same as if you hear a classical piece and you know it's classical or a, a bebop or a blues piece or a south american piece and he wrote all these different styles and it was an education for me because i had to go and really study all these styles which he does automatically because he listens to all music he's he's so knowledgeable and it was an education for me it was it was fantastic so yeah anyone listening open your ears to all sorts of music you can discard it but go and listen go and listen to you know Ella Fitzgerald Sangets <laughs> Charlie Parker all that stuff yeah oh, goodness me yes fantastic stuff and we also have to learn the techniques that might be required for other things i mean my first chamber little chamber orchestra i was i was in in london was it was a contemporary orchestra and we we had to play weird things really weird things and learn different techniques so it was sort of learning on the job sort of thing and um we we have to do that as professionals we have to learn all the techniques in order that if it comes up in, in a piece that you've got to play, that you're familiar with it. But don't neglect the classic technique, developing your sound, beauty in the sound, and making sure your technique is is fluent. Yep, and for me... And playing in tune. Oh, yeah, playing in tune. Playing in tune. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit pointless if you can play 100 miles an hour and uh, you're out of tune when you're playing, yeah. So perfecting your the, your technique, that for me, that would be, it's le- when you learn to drive, you have to do the fundamentals. And for, you need to know the, your flute fundamentals and you need to constantly work on your flute fundamentals. But your technique could also be the techniques of other genres. So un- begin to understand those because your overall performance will just sing. You'll just It'll just fly. And if you only listen to flute players, you won't develop as a musician. You've got to listen to singers. You've got to listen to string players. And you've got to listen to other genres. So... Brilliant. I think we're we're at the end, Claire. We're at the end. Okay, we'll have to meet up again and do some more questions. We must indeed. So thank you for joining us, Claire, on Zoom That's this good. week. Very welcome. All I can say is your dogs have been quiet and my dog, Mouse, is fast asleep beside me. So we've had a little bit of peace. Perfect. Perfect. It's worked very, very well. And thanks to our listeners. And remember, if you've got questions, do send them in. Very happy to answer them. Take care, everybody. Take care, Claire. Thank you, John Paul. Bye for now. Bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.